Biblically speaking, to understand the forces that are in play today that lead up to the events of Revelation, it's good to understand who God is and who we are. We are made in the image of God, and God had created in the Garden of Eden marriage and the family. And he made that an inseparable bond. As Jesus said, you cannot divide a marriage covenant. It would be like cutting one person in half from from head to torso. That person could not live under those conditions. And likewise, the bond between a married couple no longer is two. The two have become one. So just as one could not be separated, the two that are now one can no longer be separated. And likewise, when this husband and wife that are now one, when they procreate and they have a child, that child is the perfect blend of the father and the mother. The DNA is is like a um, like a woven tapestry of of half of the DNA of of the male, half of the the female, woven together to make the perfect blend in the womb. That's what Psalm one thirty nine fifteen says. So the child is um, is themselves, but they are also an equal portion of the father and of the mother. So you have this inseparable uh, connection that is that is made between the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, and there's inseparable connection between the mom, the dad, and the child. That is the way that, that God had created it. The demonic forces, because they cannot get their hands on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they do what they can next do, and that is to go after the institution of marriage that God has created. So he is trying to draw a wedge between the, the husband and the wife and between the child and the parents. And to try to separate that, that is um, the next best thing in, in, in the demonic world to getting after God himself. So it's good to know a little bit more about the relationship between the Godhead and between the family. So looking at uh, the relationship of God, one of the things that can be um, a little confusing at first glance is when we see terms about Jesus referring to him as the Son of God, and then he's also referred to as the Son of Man. Well, as we discussed in the um, earlier podcast, the interactions with Jesus, Jesus um, is that perfect blend of 100% God and 100% man. So on the 100% God side, he is referred to as the Son of God. Now, where it can be confusing is when we look at the word son or daughter, we would think um, of offspring. We would think about biology. We would think about uh, um, hereditary um, lineage. We would think about procreation. So we would think about, uh, think about those things, but that is not what is being referred to in son. It's not uh, um, you know, that Jesus was created or or that uh, God had some sort of relations and Jesus was produced, if you will. Um, what it's saying in, when it says Son of God, it's really a description of his authority and of his essence. Regarding his authority as the firstborn son, there are certain um, benefits of that. One is that uh, 
um, the majority of the inheritance would go to the firstborn. Um, the family name would be passed down um, through the genealogy, um, you know, so that, that name would become secure through the firstborn son, uh, not through a firstborn daughter, for example. Um, the, um, the power and authority of the son is equal to, to the father. Um, Jesus said um, in John 8.36 that who the son frees is free indeed that, um, for example, if there was a, a slave owner and the son wanted to write a letter of freedom and give it to a particular slave, that slave was free. Um, so down the road, if, if in a different county or a different part of the country, somebody wanted to verify that indeed that slave was not a runaway slave, but truly a free slave, he could produce the papers. And even though it was the son that had written it, it had the same equal authority as if the father did it because the father and the son come from the same household, they share the same last name, they share the same essence with one another. So, so there's, um, there's two connections. One is, is the, the rank order that the firstborn, there's a, there's a rank of authority with that. And then the second is that there's a, there's a shared essence. Um, so what, uh, what Hebrews 1.3 says is the son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. So Jesus being the firstborn, the, the son of God, he is the essence of God. You and I are not the essence of God because we do not have God's righteousness. We do not have God's ability to create. We do not have God's wisdom. Um, but Jesus uniquely can be called the son of God because he does share that same essence. So, for example, in Genesis during creation, when the, um, when the animals and the, and the plants were being created in the first page of Genesis, it said that the, the wild beast, um, they are all of one flesh and one essence, um, one kind, if you will. Um, and then the farm animals, they're of another kind. Um, and then the, um, uh, the fish, they're of another type or another kind, another essence. And then you have the birds, they're of another, another type, another essence. And then you have the, the plants, uh, you have the vegetation, and they're of another type, another kind. Uh, they don't cross from one to another, they stay within their own essence. So for example, um, a cherry tree or cherry would not come from an orange tree. Um, it, it, it is what it is. So the same is true with, with God. When you are the son of God, you, you're in essence, you're saying you're of the same essence as God. So, so it's an exact um, replication, representation. It's not almost exact. It is exact. So what God can do, Jesus can do. What Jesus can do, God can do. There's no drop off. There's no diminishing. There's no um, God the Father can do certain things and Jesus can't. No, it's the exact replication. When they look in a mirror, God the Father sees Jesus. When Jesus looks in the mirror, he sees God the Father. It's one of the same. It's a, there's an identical uh, to them. So Jesus had, had said many times that he um, came to do the Father's will. Um, so Jesus made himself an equal. He never showed himself being superior to God the Father because that would diminish him. So he always... He always um, um, indicated that he was of the same essence, that what the Father does, Jesus does. When the Father works, Jesus works. When the Father judges, 
Jesus judges. So there's there's an equal uh, to that. There's a same of essence. So when you're speaking of God, um, Son of God, it's it's also it's a rank um, with authority, and then it's also a shared essence with uh, with one another, and that would be the 100% God. When you're looking at the the Son of Man, that would be um, a term really on the 100% side of of the humanity of, of Jesus. In the Bible, Jesus was not the only one to be referenced as the Son of Man. For example, um, Ezekiel in 37 uh, verse 3, um, Ezekiel himself is called the Son of Man. So a Son of Man is a little bit more of a generic term because there's there's many that are um, um, son of mankind. You and I are, are sons and daughters of mankind. Um, so, so we share that with Jesus. But what we don't share with Jesus is him being a son of God because that is something that is, is unique to him um, in the essence. So a couple of things that uh, we would want to know is that out of this, this essence, out of this relationship, that Satan uh, wants to devour and destroy. Um, and he does this by trying to break up marriages, and he tries to do this by, um, by killing the child in the womb. So the child in the womb is part of the perfect unity of the mother who gave birth. And in Proverbs 23, 22, speaks of the husband, the father, who gave you life. So in the Bible, there's many times where there's been unusual births that have been documented. Um, for example, we have um, Sarah. Sarah in the Bible, uh, she was 90 years old. And she was uh, fearful that she would become the laughingstock having a child um, at, at such an old age. God, even though her womb was dead, brought it to life and allowed her to, um, to have a child. So God's participation um, with that birth, even though it was unusual, uh, God supported that. Um, you have the Virgin Mary, once again, another unusual birth. Um, Jesus born of a virgin. The Virgin Mary didn't use an excuse of uh, something unusual that had happened um, that, that caused the conception to use that as an excuse to terminate her pregnancy. Um, when you look in uh, the Old Testament, or when you look in the New Testament, I should say, um, with Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, uh, she was born, um, John the Baptist was born, um, in, in Elizabeth's older age, uh, beyond childbearing age. And, uh, and once again, that was a, an unusual circumstance. So just because there's unusual circumstance doesn't mean that, that, um, that gives any right to, um, to terminate the, the pregnancy because we are all made in the image of God, even in unusual circumstances. So we also have in the Old Testament where the demonic forces have always been attacking the family. Um, we have numerous places where, um, where there's documentation where the people were, rather than aborting their child, um, soon after they were delivered, they would throw them in the fire, which in essence is the same thing. So um, you can see this where the sons and daughters were burned in the fire. You can read about this in Second Kings in chapter 16, 3, in chapter 17, 31, in chapter 23, 10, in chapter 21, 6. You can read about it in um, Jeremiah 
chapter 7, verse 31. You can read about it in chapter 19, verse 5, which goes on to give uh, some commentary from God that this is um, an abomination, that this is a detestable practice, something that has not even entered in God's mind or imagination. Um, so you can read about that. Uh, you can read in Deuteronomy chapter 12, um, verse 11, or chapter 12, verse 31, or chapter 18, verse 10. And there's many other places where it speaks about this uh, children, um, sons and daughters being burned in the fire. Um, in essence, a, uh, an older version of, uh, of today's abortion. So the demonic um, forces have always been trying to break apart the family. For if they cannot get to God, they will get to those that are imitators that have a relationship to God. Or as Jesus said in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. So who is it specifically that is being influenced and that is drawing this wedge between the family and trying to disrupt marriage? So that all comes to the, the demonic world. Well, who are, who are, you know, what consists of the demonic world? Well, at one time, all of the angels were holy angels during the time of creation. Soon after creation, they became fallen angels. Uh, one third of the angels became fallen angels. Among the fallen angels, some are loose fallen angels, meaning they are free to roam, they, they can influence society. And there's some that are temporary, temporarily bound um, among, the, among the fallen angels. And then there's some that are permanently bound. So let's take a quick look at, uh, at some of the demonic angels. So in Ezekiel chapter 28, in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about how one-third of the angels were cast down from heaven because they were now fallen angels. Among those, among the one-third, um, uh, they are loose and able to influence society and set up systems that uh, will, will cater to sin and to do the, the will of the demonic world. Um, you may recall in, in Mark chapter 5, verse Eight as one example where Jesus had um, had freed someone that was demon possessed, and the demon had uh, made a comment and made a statement to Jesus, "Have you come before the appointed time? Um, have you come to to put us into the abyss?" So that's an indication to us that some of the um, the angels that are are currently loose um, will be bound um, into the abyss. So some are going to be temporarily bound. Um, and then others are going to be permanently bound. The ones that are permanently bound are in, um, are in chains in a, in, a, in a dark dungeon today. And they're waiting for final judgment. But they will never be loosened. And that is because of the events that they did during the flood and during the events that had happened during the times of Sodom and Gomorrah. So you can read about those two, um, those two events to find out why they are permanently bound to the point that Jesus um, flooded the entire world, uh, Noah and the ark. Why, why did that happen? Well, that happened because 
of these fallen angels, what they had done. And because of that, they were permanently bound. So you can read about that in 1 Peter chapter 3. You can read about that in Colossians uh, chapter 2. You can read about that in Jude chapter 1. Uh, you can read about it uh, in 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, so you can read about it in Genesis chapter 19. You can read about it in G Genesis chapter 6. So it will fill in some of that information regarding these angels that are permanently bound. But then there's some that are, are temporarily bound um, for what they've done. Maybe they've uh, um, influenced someone to commit murder. So so they've been, um, uh, you know, they, they've been... Um, um, put into taken out of society, if you will. Um, you know, God has taken them out of society, and they have temporarily been bound. Um, they're put into the abyss for a thousand years, um, so they're going to be temporarily bound. And then at the end of the thousand years, Jesus is going to open up the abyss and allow these ones that are temporarily bound to come out and to um, reengage with the people. So, so today there are. A percentage of those one-third of angels that are not temporarily bound and they're not permanently bound they are on the face of the earth today they're um, you know they're creating illnesses they're creating um, um, influence uh, they're, they're leading uh, the false church uh, they're, they're, they're setting up uh, systems of prostitution and drug use and and doing all of these different things to prompt people to sin to rebel against God for the demonic world knows that there is no forgiveness of their sins. When Jesus went on the cross, that was the, to redeem the sins of you and I. But the fallen angels, the demons, have no way to have their sins forgiven. They will be uh, judged and put uh, directly into hell forever. There is no mechanism for forgiveness. That is why during the events of the flood and during the times of Sodom and Gomorrah, that they tried to pervert um, the blend of humanity and um, in the angelic world. So we are not defenseless um, because we have the armor of God that will help protect us. Um, and quite frankly, the armor of God are really defensive um, in nature. Um, it's really putting on the helmet of salvation, knowing in the end we win and they lose. Uh, putting on the breastplate uh, of, of righteousness. Uh, to be um, imitators of God will bring, bring a protection, um, certainly if not um, in the physical sense, certainly in the eternal sense, um, that righteousness will be accredited to us. And, uh, and you can read through those, um, um, the armors of God, which is in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, beginning in, in um, verse 10. So out of all of those um, uh, mechanisms that uh, will uh, put on the armor, there's only one that is offensive. There's only one way we go on offense against the demonic world, and that is um, by taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. An example of that comes to us from Jesus when he was in the desert for the 40 days being tempted by Satan. When Satan tried to... Um, bring about temptation to Jesus, Jesus said, it is written. It is also written. It is written. So he always went back to the word of God. And then he said, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. So by um, using the word of God is really the only power that we need.
Um, an example on the other side comes to us from the Garden of Eden when Satan tried to tempt uh, Adam and Eve into eating the fruit of the tree. Um, what did he say? Um, did God really say? Well, Adam and Eve's response to that should have been absolutely. Um, that's exactly what God said. Flee from me. But they were wishy-washy on that. They didn't uh, stand by what God said to him, what God's word was. So the point of all of this is that there's a battle that is being waged against the family and against marriage and against society. And the purpose of this is to disconnect us from one another to and reconnect us with false substitutes, with false alternatives. We should have God as our source and our provider. But if there's a void, if God is taken out of the equation, who fills that void? Well, the demonic world does. Well, how does the demonic world work? Well, they work through false systems. They work through alternatives such as government, such as the false church. So if you can't have people fragmented from one another, they will reconnect to false connections of, of, of false deities. Though there is a battle going on between the spiritual world and the unspiritual world, it's good to remember that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Our born status is that we are already in rebellion against God. Sin is already in us in the womb. So when we are born, that is our disposition. However, through forgiveness and mercy by turning to Jesus for forgiveness for what he did on the cross, we are reconciled to him. So when we turn to him, he becomes the Prince of Peace. He becomes our advocate. He is our uh, intercessory to uh, God the Father. It's almost like a, a court of law where you have God the Father sitting um, in the judge's chair and you have Satan who is bringing accusations against you and I. Um, this is what he did. This is what she did. And, and at that point, Jesus is our defender in this court case. He is going to God the Father and saying, that is not true. Uh, that person did not do that because I went to the cross and forgave their sin, and that never happened. It's forgiven. There's no, there's no penalty there. And God the Father judges in our favor. And this is probably best captured, these interactions between God, the Father, Jesus, and Satan. Um, you can read a little bit of this in Job chapter 1, but probably more the courtroom scene that I'm describing you would see in Zechariah beginning in chapter 3. And it spells, spells it out just like a court case where, um, where Satan is accusing us. Jesus is coming in and saying, that's not true. And the Father is judging in our favor. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace for those that, um, that turn to him and we receive his, his forgiveness. However, um, you have to remember um, that in, in, a, in a world where there is this disruption, this is not a new phenomenon to today. Even when the apostles were called, uh, imagine the 12 apostles. These were, these were, some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, but you even had a situation where you had among them where you had Simon. 
Simon was a zealot. A zealot is basically a terrorist. A zealot um, during that time meant that there was a rebellion from the Jewish people against the Roman government who was holding the Jewish people into um, into uh, slavery, if you will. They were confiscating taxes. They were uh, uh, they were controlling. They were judging. They were um, they were um, um, being suppressed. So here you had Simon, one of the apostles, that was a zealot. He would go and, as a zealot, he would go and and perhaps kill um, one of the Roman soldiers or guards or officials um, in in a sort of a terrorist attack. And then you also have within the, that same uh, a part of the apostles, you also had Matthew, who Matthew is um, somebody that was really a traitor against the Jewish people. He turned against the Jewish people and collected confiscated taxes from them to give to the Roman government. So here within the apostles, you have uh, two people that are in complete um, hatred of one another. You have one that is hating the traitors, and you have one that is a traitor, but yet Jesus being the Prince of Peace, he reconciles these people together so that they um, forget about themselves and they look at um, what uh, the concerns that you and I have. Um, they become apostles to spread, to spread uh, the gospel of, of Jesus to you and I so that we can understand it today. So Jesus being the Prince of Peace, he is able to reconcile that. When, when Judas turned against Jesus, when he betrayed him, it wasn't apparent after Jesus' um, after Jesus's three years of teaching and doing miracles um, that when, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they all looked at themselves and said, it's not me, is it? Um, Jesus was able to reconcile them, so they didn't immediately say, well, obviously it's going to be Judas. Um, they looked at themselves and said, it's not going to be me, is it? Um, so, so Jesus was able to reconcile people um, so that they, they, they didn't even know that those among them were enemies of one another, or they were able to put that down because Jesus is the Prince of Peace and he can do that for us as well. One further example of that is Apostle Paul. When Apostle Paul, before he was an apostle, he was Saul. Saul was a persecutor of the emerging church. When um, Stephen was stoned, it was Apostle Paul who um, they laid their robes down at his feet. So here you have Apostle Paul that through Jesus being the Prince of Peace was able to be converted in the heart and in action from being a terrorist against the church to be a terrorist against the family uh, to disrupt the um, to disrupt the, the 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 vows of marriage and Christianity where Jesus proclaimed this Prince of Peace status was captured in Luke chapter 4 verse 16 when he had gone into the synagogue in Nazareth and opened up the scroll of Isaiah opened it up to chapter 61 beginning in verse 1 and read from it and it it was the it was the um the prophecy about the Messiah coming how he would heal how he would bring about a uh, renewness how he would bring about uh about uh, um, peace between God and man. And then he closed the scripture, he, he closed the scroll, 
and said, this has now been fulfilled. This prophecy has now been fulfilled in your hearing. So in what ways is this battle being fought? In what ways are the demonic ways trying to disrupt the family, marriage, what's going on in society, setting up these systems for, for sin? Well, probably the biggest strategy that they have is by omission. If you can eliminate God or the view of God, then once again, people are fragmented and people have a yearning to connect. So rather than connecting what is true, which is God, they will connect with what is false. So for example, when looking at the flood in creation, well, if you eliminate the belief that the flood happened, well, you're also eliminating the fact that that God exists because who created the flood? God. So if people commonly would believe that the flood existed, that it really happened, it was a historical event, well then you would also have connected with that a belief and understanding in God. But if you can perpetuate that there was no flood, then you can omit God. Uh, you can eliminate God. So the Bible is very clear. It records, it documents these things. So for those that, uh, that turn to the Prince of Peace, that those that, that turn, we can see it and we can believe it. But others will follow false systems. They will follow evolution or, or other, other systems. Uh, the Bible captures many different things that uh, on the surface, if you didn't know, you you could be led to believe that these things don't exist. Like um, there might be a question like, well, how how do you explain the fact that there's different races, that there's people that are, um, uh, you know, white and people that are, are brown and people that are black? And, and how, how do you, you know, how do you determine that? And why do we have different languages if we're all you know, created from one, you know, wouldn't we all be the same? Well, the, the Bible records this. The Bible records the human races. Uh, in Genesis chapter 25, for example, and then also in chapter 10, it talks about the nations, how two nations were born in, in, in the womb at the same time and how they came out, how they were different. Um, it talks about, uh, we talked about on earlier podcast, uh, there's two chapters uh, dictated to dinosaurs, talking about how um, the dinosaurs have this armored plate and how they have these these shields um, that are on rows on their backs and um, and it, it describes uh, their teeth and their in their barrel chest like a like a t-rex and how their their tail is like a, a like a cedar tree that sways be back and forth behind them uh, so there's there's um, two chapters in job 40 and 41 about dinosaurs and then about the languages um, uh, that's captured in, in, in Genesis chapter 11. Um, um, and then you could, someone may say, well, how about cavemen and, and drawings in the, um, in, in the caves? Um, well, that's captured in Genesis chapter 11 and in Job uh, chapter 30 and in Jeremiah 49. And if it's referenced in, in Genesis chapter 19, where when the language, languages were confused, people couldn't understand each other. So what happened is they, they left the area of Babylon and they had tried to find other people that they could communicate with. 
So these tribes and these bands started to go together. The people that were less intelligent, uh, they went to the caves and not being able to communicate, they were drawing and so forth. So the Bible uh, speaks of that. The Ice Age, uh, that's captured in Job chapter 38 and also in Psalms 147. So the point is that if you, um, if you omit these things, you're also um, emitting or eliminating God. But when you, when you record these things, then it's also bringing the presence of God in there. So that's one of the strategies that they have. If, if, you, if you eliminate what is true, people will congregate to what is false. As a reminder to ignoring and overlooking God's work of creation, a miracle of creation, once again, we're reminded of uh, Jesus when he turned the uh, loaves in fish uh, and fed 5,000 that was uh, recorded in the Gospel of John and uh, if you recall that after after they ate the next morning they were looking for Jesus and they wanted breakfast and they they loved the food so much it tasted so good because it didn't have any sin in it so it tasted different it had it had a great uh, great flavor and they 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 there was an intricate uh, conversation back and forth that goes on for um, you know, for a chapter and a half about how they wanted this food. And, and the point is that they were, they were ignoring the miracle. They were ignoring um, God. They were just looking at the end result, but not looking at, at the provider of that. Uh, they just wanted their, their bodies uh, filled with that good food, but they weren't uh, willing to pay any attention to how that came about, uh, the power behind uh, creating that. Uh, they were ignoring God. Uh, so that would be an example of, of the creation. And it's also just a reminder that uh, in, in God creates really in two ways. Um, you know, uh, he does miracles in two ways. He does it through creation, um, certainly, you know, creating the world and, and creating the loaves and the fish. And he also does it through providence, which is really more um, more typical of what we see today. Um, when we think about uh, in the New Testament, uh, some of the, the things that were happening um, in and around Jesus, um, a lot of the miracles that happened were really a providence. Um, when the um, when the apostles were fishing after uh, Jesus's resurrection, and when he appeared to them on the on the beach, and in the fish, uh, they couldn't catch any fish, and he said, "Well, try it on the other side." And then suddenly there there were you know so many fish it was, it was ready to bust the the nets. Well, that was a that was a miracle of providence. God moved those uh, those fish about. Um, he didn't create the fish, but he moved them into that area. Uh, the the fish uh, that had the coin in its mouth that was that was a miracle of providence. God didn't create a coin to put in the fish. You know, through somewhere someone you know had a coin that probably fell out of their pocket or whatever it was. The fish ate it and, and uh, swallowed it, and and uh, and God used that for His purposes. Uh, the tomb that that nobody had ever been buried in, uh, that was a providence, uh, miracle of providence that God had put in place specifically for for Jesus to be um, to be that body that would go into it. Having the donkey that Jesus would ride in, He said, "Go and 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 you're going to see this donkey. It's going to be tied, and no one's ever ridden it." Um, in the upper room, um, you know, the food is prepared there for the Last Supper. These are all uh, providence, uh, miracles of providence. Having the, the wine vinegar there to fulfill that, that prophecy from the Old Testament that they would offer him wine vinegar at the cross. Uh, so all of these things are examples of, 
of miracles of providence. And we see this every day. We see people moving in and out of our lives. We, we see, um, you know, how God provides us our foods and our jobs. And, and um, you know, that's really, you know, we don't really see the miracles of creation, although, you know, God is God. He can do what he wants. But, uh, you know, we really see the providence. We see his hand in, in, in everything that uh, bringing rain, um, you know, wh- where it's needed and so forth. So if God can do these miracles and if he's so hands-on with what's going on in the world, it begs the question, you know, why does God tolerate sin? Why does he tolerate evil? Uh, why does he allow this tack on the family if he, if he values it and created it? Why does he allow that? So, so that implies that, uh, that God tolerates other people's sin, but he doesn't tolerate our sin. So if we asked, well, why doesn't God just snuff out evil? Isn't that really saying, you know, if, if God did that, would we be snuffed out? Um, are, are we just talking about other people's evil, other people's uh, uh, sin, or are we talking about our sin? Um, so, so we have to be careful when we're saying, you know, why doesn't God just uh, crush evil? Because, quite frankly, um, that evil might be in our hearts as well. So we, we have to praise God that he is patient and that he, he is so willing to tolerate a direct offense to him. It just shows his character. It shows his love. It really shows his attributes that that God would be willing to um, to take that that sacrifice for a time. But then there is going to be full retribution. And when that happens, we have to understand that really, when we look at persecution, certainly persecution comes from individuals, but it really channels generally speaking, through government. Uh, government, if, if you just look at historically, uh, over hundreds of years or thousands of years or during the time of, of Jesus, it was the Roman government. It was Pontius Pilate. It was, you know, um, you know it was uh, Hitler. It was, you know, the, this is government. Government sanctions um, persecution. Um, it, it comes from individuals as well, but but it really is channeled through governments. Government is the the substitute. It's the alternative to God, and you have to remember that that will turn against the people. Um, so you have to be aware of that. In the Battle of Armageddon, that is that's government. Uh, these are countries that are rising up. Um, in in Zechariah chapter fourteen, we don't want to be in that situation where where Jesus comes down, it's not a battle. It's not even really a fight in the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus just breathes on him, on them, and, and they're vanquished. It's not like it's it's really even takes any 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 effort from God's point of view. It's a non-fight, but in our foolishness, in our pride, we think that we can compete against God. And what happens is when God breathes on us, what Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2 says, is that when that happens, our tongues rot. Our eyes um, rot right out of their sockets. So as these people are walking, they really almost become into disintegrating zombies that just fall and collapse right in front of them. Their their tongues are, are just rotting right in their mouths. Um, you know, we don't want to be part of that. We want to be on on the on the helmet of, of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, where our team wins. So in conclusion, the thing that we would want to um, just be mindful of is that the Bible speaks to us in ways that 
that we understand. Um, the people back during the time of, of, of Jesus, they, they understood the things he was saying, the parables, because they were farmers. They, they tended sheep. They were, um, you know, they were, um, they had agriculture backgrounds. Um, so Jesus talked to them about plants and he talked to them about seeds and things that they talked to. Quite frankly, if Jesus came during our time, he would probably speak to us in terms that that we would better understand. He would probably use sports parables and sports analogies because that's really where our society is. So he would probably talk to us really more in our language. Um, but don't uh, don't be deterred that that he's using uh, farming and, and seeds and so forth as examples because we certainly still can relate to that. But it just may not be as familiar to us as it would be to the people of that time. So one of the things along that line that Jesus spoke about, and this pertains to you and I, he talks about our resurrections. He talks about our bodies. And once again, he used this farming met metaphor. Um, and, and he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 15, um, it, it talks about how, you know, the, the word of God is that seed that is put on the, you know, put on the, the soils. And in the seed, um, when you look at a seed, you, you, you really don't know what it, you know, if you're looking at a, um, you know, um, a, a seed from uh, an oak tree, for example, uh, when you put that in the ground, it doesn't look like ultimately what's what the end result is. Or if you put a pumpkin seed in, um, you know, it doesn't really um, look like its end result. When you put it out, it's going to come out at, you know, a pumpkin's going to be orange and round and and that's not what the seed looks like. So the point is when you and I, we in essence, our bodies are going to be those seeds. Um, they're going to be put in the ground. They're going to be put in one way and they're going to come out of the ground looking um, something completely different. Um, and that's what, what Jesus talks about in our, uh, as far as our, our resurrected bodies. But this is not a spiritual um, resurrection. It is a physical resurrection. Job in chapter 19.25, Job talked about, With my own eyes I will look and see God. So we're not just going to be looking at him in some sort of a, a spiritual um you know, um, existence, we will have physical bodies. They will be different uh, than what went into the ground. They will be glorified and everlasting, but they will be physical bodies that eat and drink and run and play and, and do these sort of things. Um, when we read about uh, in Ezekiel chapter 31, um, it talks about how these dry bones and, and how these tendons from the grave, how they start to rattle together and how the tendons start to, to reconnect and, and how flesh starts to come on. And, and it really gives a description of the resurrection. So you may want to read, if you're interested in that, uh, in that uh, read Ezekiel chapter 37. It will really kind of show how we will be emerging um, out of the graves as our, as our bodies are being uh, resurrected, um, so you you can you can read about that, and then um, and then just uh, you know one one final thought is that when we read the Bible, we can read it word for word and letter for letter, um, and and have confidence that what is written is true and accurate. Uh, Jesus himself said, you know, that not one one um, dot or tittle will be. Uh, missing, he said, "The earth, the earth, um, and heaven will fade away, but my 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 word will never will never die. You know, there's not a a dot or a tittle that will be um, that will be changed from it. That will that will not 
um, happen exactly the way that God said. So, you know, there's there's not a, a dash of a stroke. There's not a, a T that's not crossed. There's not a, a comma or an ex, exclamation mark that's going to change from God's word. When he projects it, that is exactly how it's going to happen. So we can have confidence in that. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 1. And we also just want to be, you know, that... Um, you know, we want to be mindful that, you know, many of us maybe did have abortions and many of us do sin. And, and in God's eyes, one sin is really not worse than any other. Um, whether someone steals or uses the Lord's name in vain, sin is sin. If someone killed or had murder, so our backgrounds are all forgivable. Um, you know, God God does not say, well, that's a, that's a sin too grave. Um, as long as we are breathing and as long as we confess and trust that God is who he is and he did what he did, we can trust in that. Um, sure, you know, even though we're forgiven, we still, may, we still make mistakes and we still backslide. But we can be mindful that in the upper room during the time of the Last Supper, um, we, can be, we can be reminded that Jesus, when he washed the apostles' feet, really what he was telling us is that you know, yes, we, we, you know, we, we do have sin of the day, but overall we don't need a shower. We just need a spot cleaning. We just need to have our, our feet washed for, for the sin that we did on this particular day. Um, but, but we're clean overall. We don't have to take another shower. That has already been happened um, um, originally during our um, salvation from, from um you know, from forgiveness for what what Christ did on the cross. So that is where this Bible study, um, where this podcast will end. I just want to, um, you know, just recommend um, that John MacArthur has been a great teacher to me. Um, I've listened to many of his teachings, and he's explained things in a a simple way. And hopefully um, I, I have been somewhat of an imitator of him. So I want to give John MacArthur... Uh, of grace to you church um, you know the proper credit uh, that that certainly he deserves and I just want you to know that uh, I am just like you Um, I am just somebody that uh, you know reads the Bible and is interested in it and I just want to confess and share the things that I know the things that God has made known to me um, through the gifts that he has um, gives each of us and uh, I'm just uh, proclaiming to you what God has proclaimed to me through his word.